You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative, and to help me in assembling the Avengers is John Mills. Indeed I am. Bigger, badder, and tying loose ends together like never before. You know, and and we actually are going to have some Avengers. We are finally going to assemble the Avengers tonight. That's I mean, right. some assembly required, I guess, but uh, yeah. Yes, very much so. Uh, and, we're, you know, I have a lot of thoughts coming into this one. This is my first time hitting Disney's Marvel's The Avengers mm-hmm. in a while. And so yeah, it's a very here. different type of experience watching it now with all the everything yeah. behind us and <laughs> just knowing how it's going to play out and just so different watching it. Okay, before uh, we get to all that, want to just say a huge thank you to everybody that's listening. I appreciate the response to uh, Assembling Avengers. We've had lots of people downloading the show. We'd love to hear from you. So Catch up with us on Twitter at the 602 Club. Use the hashtag Assembling Avengers. Again, John and I would just love to hear your thoughts about the show if you're listening. Uh, You can also find us on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Of course, we've got the listeners only discussion group there called the Babel Conference. You can join and talk to us there about what you're thinking about the show. Love and discussion there. So thank you for everyone who's listening and commenting there. Uh, of course, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. I want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's been doing that. We had a new review come out on uh, Apple Podcasts for the 602 Club feed. So thank you so much. Uh, if you do like us, um, hit us up with a star rating review on Apple Podcasts. That does still help the show grow because... Still in the main place, people are getting their podcasts. It's crazy. Uh, and then uh, you can also find us over on Trek.fm, which is our website where you can find everything that we're doing, uh, as well as send us an email over at Trek.fm slash contact. So, John, I I did want to actually, and we've been doing this in, in some of our more recent episodes where we're kind of like, before we even start about like our first times to see that there's some interesting behind the scenes uh stuff and um this movie was originally penned by the same person uh zach penn who had done the incredible hulk he had Mm -hmm. written that movie and one of the questions that you asked me last last movie when we talked about captain america the first avenger was about villains and I was reading that they had always intended to use Loki as the villain, but Penn had also had early discussions about using Red Skull. And I thought that that was fascinating that that had actually been in contention at all. It would have made sense. I mean, we saw how Red Skull went. It was technically set up uh, the way that we it, they would have had to break one of their rules about how the infinity stones worked and stuff like that Mm -hmm. as we understood them. Uh, But that wasn't established by this point. So it was wide open. I think Loki is the better choice, but red skull Mm -hmm. would have been really interesting. Like red skull was a very specifically captain America enemy. Loki 
uh, even though he's Thor's brother, is mm-hmm. he's a god. So he right. has a much larger global sense of threat than somebody who's hyper localized to being part yes. of the secret Nazi yes. organization versus Cap. But an yeah. interesting discussion to be had, nonetheless. Yeah, um, I, you know, a hundred percent agree with you on that. I, I think that makes more sense. And you know, what's really interesting too is that um, Marvel snatches up Joss Whedon to have him rewrite the script. He honestly rewrites a lot of this. There's a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes info about how he's really frustrated that he didn't get sole writing credit on the movie. Um, But um, (laughs) Marvel stipulates that he include the Avengers against Loki as the battle in the middle. So I thought that this was interesting because we kind of talked about the idea as well of Marvel kind of starting to put their thought process into, okay, this movie has to include this. So this is one of those places where we actually do see that Marvel's saying, hey, no, this has to be in the movie. Which is why it makes sense, honestly, to bring Whedon on. Because Whedon is, first and foremost, a TV director. And TV directors... Are, there are great TV directors out there. There are people who are that medium was they were made for it, and the medium was made for them. But they operate best, honestly, in an environment where there's somebody putting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a fence around them. You have to stay and play in this sandbox, and I think that's why Whedon becomes a logical fit for the Marvel franchise, and probably the fact that he does become that logical fit probably informs their directing decisions right. later on down the road. Yeah. No, I, I I mean, I agree with you that uh, he made a good choice, obviously, with uh, the way that fans, uh, the small group of fans have responded, you know, to his show Firefly. And, of course, what they did with Serenity, you know, it made sense, you know, that, that yeah. they would be interested in having him here to direct the Avengers. Obviously, a they were liking the ideas he was coming up with when it came to rewriting the script here. And it also makes sense, this idea of, you know, he'd already worked with an ensemble cast. And so trying to bring an ensemble together here in the sense of all of the Avengers coming together, you know, that also makes sense. And so I, I think, you know, aside from and we I think we'll talk about later, obviously, the, you know, any issues we have with Whedon and especially with what's come out. Um, recently about his behavior on certain sets and all. But we see here, I think that, you know, he does have the chops to be able to try and mesh together a bunch of different characters, give them all their own moments, but at the same time have the the work feel more cohesive. Yeah, I, I there there's no lie that Whedon is very adept at taking ensemble casts and putting them together. That, that's not a big major revelation. It's right in his wheelhouse. It's exactly where he lives and has always lived. That, and that's always been his focus. So again, you know, that sort of TV background lends itself to something a little bit different because this is, this is not Captain America. Captain America's story can be about mm-hmm. Captain America. Iron Man's story can be about Iron Man, Thor, the Incredible Hulk. It can be all about those guys. We still, I think you and I, we, we already talked about this, but Black Widow should have been in that buildup mm-hmm. with her own thing. But whatever. You know, what are you going to do? I think that what is really interesting, and I think the reason that Whedon's uh, TV chops help him out and help the movie out as a whole here, 
is the fact that he's used to working in the recap so that if you missed a previous episode, you can Mm -hmm. still catch what's going on in terms of filmmaking. It's I think it's both a good and a bad. And I want to get your take on this, because for me, it's both a good and a bad, because in one sense, it turns this into a big budget television show. And we'll talk about the other ways that it reflects that, uh, you know, later on in the conversation, because you get the recap. This is who this character is. This is where we're coming to. But there's this big implication of it's it's got a different feel than, say, a let's just take Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi doesn't make any verbal reference to, hey, you remember that time on Cloud City? Hey, we fought on Hoth that one. It doesn't make reference to those sorts of things. This script does. This script makes reference to past episodes I didn't see. So there's there just mm-hmm. seems to be uh, just a, a, a more blunt, a less subtle way of bringing everybody together. Do you get that mm-hmm. same thing or am I being nitpicky on this? No, I don't think you're being nitpicky because... And I think you made an excellent reference to Return of the Jedi. And, you know, the the struggle that Marvel has here with you have a loose set of sequels to movies that are introducing all of these different characters, but are all loosely tied into a story that's continuing forward. And Avengers is the end game of that. Pun intended. Fair uh, enough. And so... Uh, but you're also trying to make sure that, well, what if somebody missed, you know, Captain America? What if somebody missed Thor? We want to make sure that you have just enough so that you kind of understand where these characters are coming from, which, you know, is interesting because you mentioned the idea of bringing Whedon in because he is a television director. And in many ways, I think this is our first implication that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to become television for film, where... Yeah. You have to have seen the previous installments to truly get the most out of the next film. And that the work that the films are doing is not just to service the story there, but also to set up continuous stories, just as a TV show is doing. I'll actually pile on there and say that one of the things, and I'm not trying to show too much leg here because we have a the rest of the show to go through, but one of the things that I think is really frustrating about this movie is because we're purposely coming at it with a more critical eye this time, Uh, you know, just trying to pick it apart a little bit more. The first time I saw this and we we skipped our usual, did you see this in the theater thing? We both saw it in the theater. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and and we'll get some of that stuff stuff, later for sure. But, uh, what is, uh, you know, tremendously frustrating, uh, in one regard is watching it this time with that more critical eye and saying to myself, What is this movie about? What is it really Mm -hmm. about? And all I can say is it's really about nothing. It's about bringing the characters together. I, I understand that there's sort of a surface thing about Tony is, you know, he's self-sacrificial at the end. He goes on the same arc that he's been on twice before. Okay. We'll go through it again with him. Cap is, you know, Everybody else is sort of steady state through the movie. There's no real focus on growth or tremendous depth. It's all very Mm -hmm. surface level. And I think that's because Whedon, while we're sitting here praising, Mm -hmm. okay, he has this great television pedigree. He has television pedigree from the 90s mostly. 
Right. It's not the type of television pedigree that we would be referring to now mm-hmm. with Netflix and streaming sure. series and giant mythological arcs. But but that that thing is what I'm mostly at is what is this really about besides making a movie to uh, happen? Well, uh, yeah, and I'll I'll challenge that because I do think that the movie is about something. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's able to completely follow through. Um, and I think there's 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 two things. One, it's about what we lost. Uh, Cap talks about um, as he comes back this idea of they say we won the war. Uh, and that we defeated them, but what have we lost? Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, as we move forward, Captain America becomes the character to which all of this revolves around morally, which is he's going to continually be asking the question about what we have lost. And we get the whole thing about, you know, uh, Agent Coulson telling him that people might just need a little bit of old fashioned. And I think what one of the things that this movie is saying specifically is that we have lost the kind of like good versus evil, all of those kind of conversations trying to be, quote unquote, more nuanced. And um, what we need is a little bit of old fashioned. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's always been one of the main themes for this film, um, which is that. And again, it all circles around the character of Captain America challenging the modern sensibilities of is the modern way of thinking about things the right way to be thinking about things or do we actually need a little bit of old fashioned? Do we need to stop approaching things uh, Mm. always as, as if everything has you know, 32,000 different points of nuance. And so I I think that's part of the question. And that (sighs) ties into the whole idea of classical liberalism versus tyranny, which obviously Cap represents and the Avengers represent versus what the the big speech that Loki gives about, you know, you're just made to kneel and all those kind of things. So I, 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 I think you're being generous there, specifically because the way this is structured is there are threads that say the Winter Soldier will much more explore. Absolutely. When Cap has when yep. Cap has lines like, you know, this mm-hmm. isn't this isn't freedom, this is fear. Yep. And yep. and it's a very much, you know, post nine eleven sort of thing. Yes. So you can be generous and you can say Whedon is teeing it up. Mm-hmm. But that in and of itself speaks to what I think is that core flaw of it mm-hmm. doesn't, in your words, follow through. It has no intention right. of following right. through. There's no the, this shadow council that's re, mm-hmm. quote unquote really running the world is never presented as a net negative until we sure. get to the Winter Soldier. Well, and and that's one of the questions then. And obviously, this is something that the Dark Knight does way better, which we do also deal with the whole idea of escalation uh, mm-hmm. in this film. And, you know, uh, you the whole thing about, you know, you you bring in automatic weapon or semi-automatic weapons and then they bring in automatic weapons. You know, that whole thing that we talk about in the Dark Knight and, and this whole idea of escalation and, and that because somebody like, you know, Thor has arrived on our world the the earth has been put on a pedestal now with the greater galactic uh universe and we are unprepared for the escalation now that we are a part of which is why one of the reasons you know fury says that we need uh the 
Avengers, as well as the weapons that he was creating that they end up finding. So, I again, like, I think that the movie, the, it's trying to say some very interesting things. The I do think that the problem becomes is that the movie is overstuffed with a lot of things that take away from the ability to really digest these thematic plot points or and not even plot points but these thematic ideas because it gets lost in especially at the end of the movie isn't this cool just look at a bunch of stuff blowing up and people doing cool things and it really loses any cohesion at that point of thematic ability and i think that's really the thing that gets frustrating and well, and i do think that part of that comes from its inability to and this is completely a whedon problem to actually stay serious for more than five minutes oh yeah that, i mean that that's a huge huge liability here but i think that okay so and and i'm gonna leave i'm gonna just after i make this next comment i'm gonna hit the accelerator we're gonna get right to the elephant in the room as far as the two of us are concerned uh, with regards to the Marvel movies. But I think that, okay, first and foremost, the problem with these themes that arguably are, you know, hinted at is you just put your finger right on it. It's wrapped up so neatly. It's not a pondering about, wow, Fury was developing these secret weapons and we can't trust anybody and there's a shadow cabal running the world that's not healthy, that's not good. Who who do they answer to? And instead it's, but in the end, the Avengers won, so it was all worthwhile. And while I understand that gives you the room to follow it up in The Winter Soldier, it's not satisfying within the context of its own self-contained story. Yes. Which gets right. back to the thing we keep hitting on, which is this is a TV episode. It's a big crossover TV event or oh, yeah. a big crossover comic book. This is just like comic books yep. where you have the yeah. separate titles and then you come together for one big crossover like Onslaught or uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the the Dark Phoenix saga. Or not Dark Phoenix, but um, anyway, where Mr. Sinister came in and stuff like that. I'm getting older, so I can't really remember all this stuff off the top of my head. But anyway, um, let's just go to the elephant in the room because I'm dying to talk about it. You know, we went on the journey in Snyder Cuts, which is available mm -hmm. in this feed. Mm -hmm. The Battle of New York here is very much held as a contrast to how the Battle of Metropolis goes yes. in Man of Steel. And I, too, fell in the trap. Well, look, at least they're going around saving people. At least you have the beauty shot that's very Michael Bay-esque of the pretty blonde running into a bagel store and turning around and looking concerned as the, the battle is reflected right. in the window yeah. in front of her. It's a very Michael Bay moment. But Michael Bay does it better, arguably, as long as you're not talking about Transformers movies, which suck. But <laughs> when you're going along there, there is wanton destruction going on in New York City. And it is ridiculous. And while you can sit there and you can say, well, Cap starts giving orders to clear the streets and stuff like that. Even that is, well, they have a team. And so Cap is a natural leader. So, of course, he can start giving orders and other people can, can fan out. But New York takes a beating. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff falling. There's a giant space worm that falls over and literally decimates two buildings at the end of it. But because they didn't approach it the way that 
Snyder does, which is showing people not just getting into the coffee shop, but getting trapped under the the Mm -hmm. concrete and rebar and everything like that. There's this different perception and I just want to get your take on it. Coming back to Avengers after all of this time Mm -hmm. with all of that, we've gone back and forth about on Snyder cuts and my changing perceptions about the battle of Metropolis and everything like that. What do you walk away with here? Is it just something where they're like they, he plugs his ears and puts his head in the sand and we'll just ignore that. There must've been thousands of people killed because it's bright and candy colored and that's okay. It was really interesting rewatching the film because I was, I was watching how many punches that they're pulling. I mean, the reality is, is that this team, even though there are still five of them, these things are flooding all over New York, causing destruction, right? Yes. So regardless of anything that they're doing, there are still hundreds of if not more of these things wrecking havoc all over the city. I mean, we also see those big worm things continue running in the buildings. And the buildings are barely affected. That's not reality. If you cut out the whole side of a building or and or the corner of a building, most likely you're going to have floors begin falling. You know, like there's so there's so little reality to what's actually going on and this battle goes on forever yep. without any good reason for it to be going on forever. Like all of it just becomes about, hey, look how cool it is to watch everybody helping. And and honestly, my wife and I both looked at each other after at the end of the movie and we're like, that just went on the end of this movie way too long because the ultimate goal here is to stop these things from coming because, yes, there are five of them, but there's still not enough of them to keep absolute destruction of new york from happening and and we're taking so long watching them save people but what about their for every one they're saving probably 30 to 100 are dying so and and the problem is is the movie doesn't deal with that reality and so it makes it seem like they save all these people when in when in all reality like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in new york died this day and if they had been honest, lots more buildings would have... I mean, it would have looked like 9-11 on steroids with the amount of buildings that probably would have fallen. And, you know, I just they just don't want to go there. So they sanitize everything. It, it's the Disney effect, honestly. Yes, and, and, and that's right. And it, it's also, to an extent, a disservice because people will say, well, it's a comic book movie. And it's like even the comp... Like Snyder is truer to the comic books at this moment yes, in time is. because the comic books don't shy away from the normal everyday people who are getting affected by all yep. of these things the death and, of superman is a perfect example right the rampage of of uh doomsday throughout all the way to metropolis i mean the, the whole point of that was the amount of destruction this creature is creating from the moment he lands all the way to his way into metropolis and then the way that fight affects metropolis like right. that's exactly where snyder is taking reference from right and and the thing is, I'm not sitting here and beating up on the end battle here. I'm just saying it's so fascinating how brightening the picture and not showing people truly afraid, showing the movie afraid, you know, safe and sound inside the, the, the shop, looking out the windows and everything is a very slick and cynical move in terms of the filmmaking. 
because mm-hmm. of that exact fact that we know it would it should be going differently than it is. And you know, for that reason, it's like I think that's why, you know, the comparisons are really not the contrasts are are really not fair because Snyder goes to greater effort to to put his Superman in our world instead of the cartoon world. So this is cartoon mm-hmm. world. Right. And it's just it it was just jarring because I was sitting there thinking, you know, when the the S falls off of the Stark Tower and falls on the building below just because it right. doesn't show the people in the building below. I'm like, well, that definitely killed some people right there. And it's just it's just odd how how that perception changes. But I do agree with you that that final battle just it starts to drag after a little bit. It's like, I mean, OK, you could cut I, I got 10 minutes point. out of it and be fine. Like legitimately I, I, 10 minutes. I don't know if I'd say 10. Definitely five. Definitely five. I mean, it, it, that, uh, you know. which in film time is an incredible amount of time. Oh yeah, no, that that's so. people don't people don't realize how different time distorts in film because of the cuts and the moves and everything like that. But like five minutes of film time, mm-hmm. there was some movie uh, Sirens, I think, in the nineties. I never saw it. But it was famous because it was like Hugh Grant and they had these oh, supermodels yeah. in it I, who appeared. I remember. In the buff. I, I, I've never seen it either. I just remember that just because remem- of all the supermodels that were in it. But I remember the specific article talking about the fact that it only had a grand total of 70 seconds of nudity in it. 70 seconds, one minute and 10 <laughs> seconds in the entire movie. And it was skirting like the, the NC-17 line as a result. So when we talk about cut five minutes or cut 10 minutes, that's a lot more than you think at first blush. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah. Just, just the time dilation that happens. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it is interesting because, I you know, I remember – Coming into this movie and and obviously at this point being very excited and seeing it in the theater and, you know, at, at this point, I think, you know, in many ways, it was kind of a pinnacle of filmmaking, mainly because you just never thought that this could possibly happen to have this many yeah. heroes in a film at one time. So you can't take that away from this movie. And I think that's something that's that's really important. And I also think. And something I wanted to get your opinion on was this, is that obviously we've already talked about this entire cast because we've already talked about all of these people together for the most part. I think really the only main character that's kind of new here uh, because this is her first introduction is Colby Smulders as uh, What's-Her-Face. Um, I, I just heard... Agent off, something or other? Yeah, yeah. Off the top of my head, I just can't remember at this exact moment. Um, <laughs> but it shows I. you how important she is. Um, I and, and I love her character. I think she, it's fun. She's great. Uh, I'd always loved her because she was in How I Met Your Mother. Anyway, but so bringing this cast together, part of this is that you know we have to do the classic thing where they fight, and I feel like I feel like that the first fight makes a little bit more sense because none of these people trust each other at all, uh, and they have no reason to really. Um, and of course, Tony's being Tony, which you, we'll talk about probably later on in the series that he's maybe Marvel's greatest villain. Uh, but <laughs> I felt like rewatching the film when they get to the second where everybody's at each other's throats. I understand that it's the amplification of the scepter that's ramping up all these feelings in these characters. But 
it just feels a little bit forced to me. Am, am I the only one who's feeling like that? Or, or did you feel like that at all as well? I think that it didn't have to feel forced. I think that it winds up feeling forced because Whedon is following TV logic, which is a lot more forgiving in terms of bouncing around from conversation to conversation. When it's a movie, it's just the, it doesn't flow as well the way that it's cut together. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not helped by the fact that, again, I think a lot of these things are very surface level. I'm going to say a line that means this. You're going to say a line that means that and not taking the time to actually dissect it. And in a giant quote-unquote fight argument like that with everybody it really would coalesce into essentially two sides as opposed to however many different side conversations happening it would really coalesce into yeah cap's right what are are you talking about and yeah no tony's right and you know the people Mm -hmm. splitting along that way and probably somebody being a peacemaker sort of thing that's easier to follow and it's a lot less of jamming bullet points into your head. I also think that the fight itself winds up being no lie, completely pointless because it all gets derailed anyway. And they wind up working together when Hawkeye goes bad and blows the engine. Right. You didn't really need to have that argument. You could have an entire thing where, Maybe there's some tension in the room and you wonder if it's going to turn into a fight. Hawkeye does his thing and they all work together, but they don't work together well. And they're not quite getting why they're not working together well. And so it just makes it leaner and more direct and and straightforward. And you could have even put some of that argument dialogue happening during the fight. That would have layered it because everybody's in different spaces. They can have separate conversations and it's not this big mashed potato mess of mm-hmm. words flying around the room. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, part of it too is that, you know, even that first fight is just a big measuring contest, which is. Shield measuring, I mean, it's not right? Un- you mean shield enjoy- measuring. Yeah. It's not unenjoyable to watch Thor and Iron Man and Cap all go at it together. But at the same time, yeah, I, I don't know. it. It's not as enjoyable as it used to be. And part of, I think, part of that is because the other thing about, I think, the TV logic here is that people don't actually have conversations. And mm-hmm. um, and in TV, many, many times, the conflicts that you have between people are because people don't actually just say what they should say to each other and they keep it to themselves and then it boils over, right? And um, that's, kind of what happens I think here in many ways is that people don't really begin to have conversations too far into the movie and and then by that point now it's time for us all to work together and fight because we got to save New York and that's what brings everybody together is something bigger but what's fascinating to me here and I wanted to ask you about this as well is going forward what Loki is after in his kind of tyranny reminded me of how similar he and Stark are in the end, because this will become the fight basically between Cap and Stark in Civil War, 
where Stark is about telling people what to do and that they have to follow these different rules and that basically they should just bow down because everybody should follow these rules. And Cap's like, no, that's not how this works. This is America, basically. And it was fascinating to me to see that this conversation is going to continue subtly throughout, and it's going to be really the Russo brothers who pick this up, this uh, thematic element, and then they do them better in Civil, uh, uh, Winter Soldier and, and then, of course, in Civil War. And really, in the end, Tony kind of becomes the stand-in almost for Loki by the time we get to Civil War. So I just thought that was really interesting. I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say he's a stand in for Loki. And I think primarily because uh, I don't want to get too far down the road. I, I'm just going to say I don't think he winds up becoming a stand in for Loki. Sure. We'll, we'll, well double I mean, we back to that when we talk then, about but, those movies. But yeah. uh, the the one thing I'll say is that uh, where Tony wind, Tony just winds up being misguided because his intentions are sure. better than Loki. Sure. Tony oh, isn't yeah. seeking yep. power for himself. Exactly. He's right. just. He's advocating yeah. for a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And if, gosh, I guess we've tipped our hands as to whose side we took in Civil War. So go figure. Um, yeah, That's as shocking. All, well, as all people should. But, you know, it is, um, it is singularly interesting to sort of pick this apart because I think we're coming, we're, we're probably coming across as more negative. And I know that we'll get back to, you know, stuff that we did truly enjoy. But one thing I want to ask about is the effects. Do you think that these effects... Now, Avengers is not terribly old. Avengers uh, 2012, right? 2012 Mm -hmm. is when this came out, right? So it's nine years. Do you think nine years later that these effects hold up? Do you think that these are good effects that would... If you Mm -hmm. release this movie today, would hold up? Well, I mean, that's a bad measuring. People are very forgiving um, of the big corporate... Mm-hmm. Affects things, but do you think that these effects are great effects that hold up, or do you think that they're? Do you wind up giving it the ultimate damning with faint praise sort of compliment of they're very good for the time? I don't think that it helps that they film on the Area Alexa digital camera. This movie looks plasticky mm. in many places, in the sense of it. And and I know people love this movie for this reason, but it feels way too bright, and it's very cartoony, in in a sense of of the way that the effects work, and and part of that comes from like, and I would say in many ways Captain America may be the first uh, movie that kind of made this feel a little bit more like this, where you kind of got super cartoony. Um, but you know the other films in the series. Uh, well, I guess even Thor, though, too, is 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 guilty of this as well. But the first three films are very grounded, right, and very kind of uh, I would say much more gritty and realistic feeling. And the last three films in this first phase continuously get more cartoonish in the way that they feel, in the sense of just everything feels less real as we go on to the point where I think we get to the final battle in New York and you the sets that they're on and the computer graphic extensions and everything never merge well. And part of that is their choice to overlight everything. Now, see, that that's the error 
is it's TV lighting. Okay. It and absolutely TV, is TV, TV lights have to be more bright. And the thing is, I'm not going to say it's because it's shot on the Aerie Alexa because there were, there were movies that were shot on the Aerie Alexa that don't look that way. Skyfall. Sure. sure. Well, that's, you know, yeah. Okay. Skyfall. Well, but uh, you also have Deacons as the DP on that movie and Deacons is a genius. True, so, but, but you, you know. have, you have Drive. Which is okay. another great yep. looking yep. film. You're you're um, absolutely right. You're absolutely Iron right. Iron Man three gets point. filmed on it. All of that stuff. So I think that where the problem lies is in the director and the DP mm-hmm. shooting too bright. Yep. But obviously shooting too bright with intent. Mm-hmm. But to your point, I definitely think that's why. Uh, for instance, when Black Widow is zooming along the skies of new york on that mm, rocket sled terrible. thing it i mean it it really is not good. looking at it saying oh yeah okay you, yeah, and it's that's oh that's not real i mean you are immediately yeah. pulled out and going oh that's not real and, and the the problem is and the thing is it's so easy to then come back at us and say yeah well what do you expect you know it's not real but there are so there are moments that look more real what I find odd looking at it in terms of the visual tone is I don't know why they didn't have some sort of cloud effect or something to darken New York while the battle was going yes. on, yep. which would have added to a sense of foreboding and fear and real stakes, mm-hmm. whereas yep. this looks like a bunch of people on a movie lot running mm-hmm. around blowing yep. stuff up. Yep, And it's, again, I know how negative we're coming across, but... You got to well, be fair. I, I think I do think part of that is because we're also thinking about the reality of comic book movies as for where they came from to where they are now. And I think one of the the genius elements that we saw in, you know, I, I would say specifically just the Iron Man films and even in uh, Hulk was that the end battles take place at night. With mm-hmm. where you're going to have super heavy effects, so that the lighting helps you out with the effects, right? Oh yeah, even in Hulk. absolutely. And so I think absolutely the same thing here. And and I hate to do this, but that's one of the things that I think Zack Snyder does really well is that all of his movies are color coded specifically so that everything matches, and so that color coding. And lighting and everything that they've done is to make the movie consistent all the way through. Whereas, again, I feel like you're absolutely right in that Avengers feels like it's lit more for the television screen than it is for the movie screen. And everything is so over bright that it pulls you out. And look, you know, a bright sunny day in New York, this is what I'm sure this would look like, but... I don't necessarily think that's the best choice for creating the best visual milieu to have this final battle in. Right. And it's odd as well, because I think that the night scene where they're fighting Thor, there's this weird Mm -hmm. difficulty with how bright and how dark some things look. And I think that a hundred percent in some of the Captain America shots in the Battle of New York he looks like he's just a guy and I, I I'm gonna phrase it in such a way that's gonna probably tick off a ton of people. It looks like a guy just cosplaying. It doesn't look like 
Yeah. Part yeah, of it and is I that know, terrible I, costume that they have him in, which is hideous. But it's yeah. well, uh, even the costume itself is too bright. The fabric is yep. weird yep. looking. It just yep. it's not awesome. And it's um, but the thing is, at the same time, we're sitting here, we're we're hammering on these things. I again have to give the movie credit for bringing all of the characters together. I really think that Robert Downey Jr. gets a lot of opportunity to shine. Obviously, Whedon's whole methodology of quick wit, rapid fire is this is Robert Downey Jr. on holiday. He's just having a great time with the one-liners because he can deliver exactly what Whedon's looking for. Mm -hmm. I think that Whedon does – I mean, I I think that Chris Evans can't give a bad performance. And I think that Ruffalo does good. You know, wow, that's terrible grammar. He does well. Ruffalo um, do good. <laughs> yeah, Ruffalo good movie making person act. Hulk smash. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and and but that's the thing, right? It is I think you wind up forgiving a lot of the sins because you get moments like someone looking at Hulk and saying Hulk smash and you're like tee hee that's what they say in the comics. And so you get those little those little uh, um endorphin bursts that as mm-hmm. a longtime comic yeah. book fan you giggle to yourself and you say yay that's like they do in the thing i like mm-hmm. and it's um well i mean that just reminded me of uh how red letter media approached rogue one so which is one <laughs> of the greatest reviews of all time but not um, as good as their last jedi review but uh not as good as their halloween kills review or prometheus <laughs> review trust me on that one anyway uh it, it is um I think it's a movie that is overlong, overstays its welcome a little bit. I think that it's a movie that could have been shot in a more interesting fashion that reflected more mood than speed. I think that there are moments that could have been collapsed and streamlined for the sake of storytelling as much as I also enjoy yes. Col- Colby Smulders. As Maria Hill. That- as Maria Hill, thank you for looking that there one you up. Go. And, yeah. But Black Widow could have been there. Well, and, and, they, they so could have I, taken that character out. Yeah, I do want to ask you about that. And I feel like Maria Hill is there because they want to have another f- strong female voice in the film. So it's not just Black Widow. Yeah. But I did notice, and I wanted to ask you so we kind of need to deal with the elephant in the room of Joss Whedon and who we all know him to be now. And his treatment, I think, of Natasha in this film. Do you see that? Do you, in light of that, do you see anywhere where you feel like Whedon was taking the character in a direction that she didn't deserve to be taking in? Or do you think he did a good job of actually taking the character and making her more important in this group of boys? I think that ultimately he does a good job with Natasha. I think that in her introduction scene, it's maybe a little indulgent in one direction that it didn't need to be uh, with the way the camera is positioned and the clothing that she's wearing. Um, I understand the the setup is supposed to be that she was trying to, she was basically acting like sure. a honeypot for the yeah. Russian general yeah. and everything. I get it. I get it. But they still could have shot mm-hmm. that a little bit differently when she's uh, in the damsel in distress mode. 
Sure. Um, I think that overall he does the character justice. I, I do think that she gets good moments when she goes mm-hmm. to get banner. That's a good, yeah. mo- that's a good yeah, scene. I agree with you. When she interacts with, uh, with Hawkeye, that's a good scene. Mm-hmm. And there's, you really believe that there's history between these two characters. So I think that on the balance sheet, he does well. And from what I understand, one of the bigger criticisms of Whedon overall, aside from the other stuff that we're just alluding to here, is that he had favorites, that he mm-hmm. played favorites, and he would favor one actor or actress over another. I have the sense here that he didn't play that game so much. I don't think that it shows here. I think that Avengers, he's probably on his best behavior. And then the success of the Avengers leads to Age of Ultron, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion we'll have to have. Oh, not looking forward to that one. (laughs) Not looking forward to that one. I I agree with you for the most part on your take about what they do and and what he does specifically with Natasha. I think he does make her very integral to the plot here in a really interesting way, especially with her being the one to kind of trick Loki into giving up what his plan is. Um, I think, you know, that's ingenious, kind of shows her ingenuity you know, what's made her a good spy for all of these years is being able to play people in a variety of different ways, especially, obviously, with what we saw at the beginning where she is playing these guys. They think they have her right where they want her, and actually she's got them right where she wants them, you know, giving up everything. And so, you know, I think all of that's really well done and enjoyable, and, you know, watching her kick those guys' butts is great. So uh, it's... I do think that you are probably right that he is on his best behavior in this film. You know, I I think if there's any favorite he has, it's probably Robert Downey Jr. uh, And it shows he enjoys writing for Robert, um, mainly because Robert can deliver the dialogue to which he is so known for writing so well. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if anybody else in this cast is as quick-witted, obviously, as Robert Downey Jr., and so, and maybe ScarJo, she's pretty decent at delivering those super quippy liners. And then, you know, Jerry Runner is actually decent at it as well. Um, you know, especially when he gets his head knocked and he's finally back to normal. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's just fascinating. You know, obviously, um, I, I think the big issues with him and his personality don't actually come like you said until we get to age of ultron and um, i think here many of his strengths are what make this movie i think good which to talk about what we like i think one of the things that he does really well is is found families obviously that's the biggest thing about firefly and that's what this movie becomes about and I, if this movie is kind of about anything, it's about these super characters who are very flawed finding a found family that will allow them to hopefully become their best selves. You know, um, that's what any superhero team up 
usually tends to be about in the comics. And I think that Joss, that's exactly what he's kind of going for here in Avengers. And I think he does that pretty well for the most part of trying Mm -hmm. to mix and match all these characters together and have some fun with them. Um, Do some things that, that fans will really enjoy, you know, like I think of that Hulk Thor fight. Yeah. You know, um, which is uh, enjoyable to watch those two characters go at it. Like you mentioned, telling Hulk to go smash, you know, um, in many ways, Tony believing in Hulk in the first place and believing that the Hulk himself could be a hero, even when, you know, Banner doesn't see it. So, I, you know, I think there's some some really strong positives here that we're able to bring in with these characters and bringing them all together, which, you know, makes it an exciting conclusion in many ways to phase one. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you about the found family. I agree with you about, uh, you know, th- there are there are arcs that work really well. I think that Whedon is naturally adept at making characters distinct. There's no question who is who is who. There's no bleed over between Cap and Tony. Everybody is who they are. And I never have a question as to what type of character they are. I think that he gives Coulson some moments to shine. I think that he... um, I try not to think about the fact that they brought Coulson back for the TV show because Coulson's death actually was very affecting. Uh, And I think that I think that Sam Jackson, this is a good, good moment for him. He this is a good moment for him. And I think that he shines here, too. Uh, I think that while the we've we've beaten up on the effects, there are some effects that still hold up incredibly well to the point where it's like, wow, this if you release this today, people would say that's an amazing effect. I, w- I would totally go on with that. I enjoy the fact that they have a moment to demonstrate exactly how strong Cap's shield is so that they can establish, reestablish, really if I missed Captain America, that this thing's virtually indestructible. And I can say, oh, wow, that's great. And if I do stay with the movie and the rest of the movies going forward, I always have that in the back of my brain. The Cap's shield stood up to Mjolnir. And so, wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, and so I, I got I to gotta ask, though, do you think, because we talked about this with uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, do you think that overture of Silvestri's from Captain America does turn into the symphony we've been looking for this whole time in terms of score? I do think that Silvestri's score here for the Avengers is good. You know, obviously it's a very memorable theme. It's it's very hummable. It can kind of get stuck in your brain. It's a nice earworm. It's exactly what you want. Um, it's it's on the level in the sense of like you can remember it like with a Superman theme or the Batman theme from 89. Uh, you know, that's excellent. That's what you want from a superhero movie, you know, and I think it's crazy that it's really the last two movies that give us themes to which have any recognition, and one is Captain America, and the other is the Avengers. Um, the one thing I will say, though, that 
And many, many, many composers these days run into this problem, which is that I miss the robustness and fullness of the symphonic scores that someone like Williams or a Horner or Jerry Goldsmith were able to create with their orchestration, which there was this very full sound. And I do miss that many of the more modern composers tend to have decent sounding orchestration, but it doesn't have that richness to it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You it know? totally does. Um, and whereas I think this is the best score now so far, Silvestri nails what you want from the Avengers by giving them a great theme. I do wish that you would turn up the richness factor so that it just feel like you want this to be a celebration finally. And the theme is a celebration that the Avengers have come together. But I also, I, it still feels a little, and and this is going to sound terrible, but I don't mean this in a horrible sense, but it just has a more hollow feel to it than something that you would have gotten previously in another generation. I agree that there's nothing that rumbles in your bones in this score. There's nothing that makes my hair stand up on end. And that's the one element I would have liked. It's got a great theme, but I don't, when I listen to Williams's Superman or Elfman's Batman, Right, I can feel this primal emotional build in my belly just come up and I, I get that adrenaline dump. And even with uh, Junkie XL's work on Zack Snyder's Justice League, I, if I listen Steel, to Super... You know, well, yeah. I mean, Man of Steel, inc- that's a ridiculous score. Mm-hmm. And, there, and that, just that one track, Flight, like just thinking mm-hmm. about it, like I get goosebumps or... From Justice League, uh, uh, Superman Rising Part Two, yeah, yeah, is like oh, like I could, I could just do anything listening to that. Um, so I do think that there's this is a good score with a very memorable, great theme, but overall, it's it's just lacking that little bit of punch that I would have been looking for. One last thing I want to hit on is in terms of the stingers. I think that this is the where we transition into the stinger as cheat so that they can work in a plot point that they didn't have time to work in in the movie uh, proper. And so it's a cheat. They couldn't figure out how to do it. So, so it exists here. The end of Captain America, the first Avenger is pretty much just a scene from the Avengers. It's just a teaser for the Avengers. And the the teasers before that are very much inconsequential in a large way in terms of how you're looking at the story as a whole. It doesn't really matter that uh, that Tony shows up with Thunderbolt Ross to talk about the Avengers initiative. Or it's a, it's a nice treat, but it's not integral, but given the fact that Ross never shows up again for several films. But one thing that will always stand out to me is when the the alien goes on his knee and talks about attacking the the earth and the avengers is to court death and we get our first real reveal of thanos turning his head to the side and smiling i was so hopeful that they were going to build toward yes infinity gauntlet 
but with him actually courting death the way he does in the comic books. Because in for anybody not familiar, in uh, that original Infinity Gauntlet saga from years and years ago, Thanos is a, a nihilist, nihilist, however you want to pronounce it. He just wants to end it all because he's literally in love with death. The personification of death holds his heart. Make he's good in life love choices. Her, right? <laughs> but he's in love with her and he starts destroying the universe because he mm -hmm. wants her to love him. Right. It's this really like Marvel comics back in the 70s and 80s were just bonkers with the type of stuff that they did. And I was so hopeful they were going to go that way. And so I got sort of what they promised, but not quite the way I was expecting mm -hmm. it. And this, th so this, this stinger with Thanos is always a little bit too much of a tease for me because it's meant to evoke that old comic series and mm -hmm. throw us, I, I, I guess, but at least we're on the scent now that Thanos is going to be our big, big villain over uh, the course of everything. You know, I had no problem with it um, then. I think as we went on in the Marvel Universe, I was like, this is taking forever. You know, I mean, it takes forever to get to Infinity War and then Endgame. It's like, it's such a tease that this is where we're going and then 10 years later we'll get there. <laughs> it's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> But it'll be interesting to see if it's not as obnoxious when we watch it in quicker fashion. I mean, it could be, yeah. Which That's would, again, speak to the whole point. idea of this as big-budget television. Yeah. Because TV is less annoying with the longer plots mm -hmm. because when you can binge-watch something, which is essentially what we're doing here, mm -hmm. when you can binge-watch, your, your, uh, your patience is tested less. I, I've got to ask you a question because obviously... Ruffalo replaces Ed Norton. Mm-hmm. And this is what Feige said about their decision. Our decision is definitely not one based on monetary factors, but instead rooting in the need for an actor who embodies the creativity and collaborative spirit of our other talented cast members. The Avengers demands players who thrive working as a part of an ensemble, as evidenced by Robert, Chris H, Chris E, Samuel, Scarlett, and all of our talented casts. We are looking to announce a name of an actor who fulfills these requirements and is passionate about the iconic role in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. He could have made a much uh, quicker statement and prepare the bleep button by simply releasing a statement saying Ed Norton's a dick and then just sent that out. That's essentially what he just said. And uh, pardon the bleep, but seriously, I, there, there was no need to do that. They purposely tore Norton down in that one. And if you notice, Norton's career starts to have some difficulty from this point forward. Mm -hmm. This is where he gets a reputation as a very difficult actor to work with. Right. And um, I guess this is our first object lesson in Disney and Marvel will not be afraid to make a, an example out of you if you step out of line. They did it with Terrence Howard 
and now they're doing yep. it with uh, with Ed Norton. And yep. I mean, it's the old the same, studio system reborn. But at the same time, I will say this: that there was a point in my life where I was working at a place where somebody was let go for various reasons. Uh, none of them legal, though. But very a lot of stuff rooted in personality issues. Person was not not easy to work with at all. Made everybody's life very very difficult. And then that person uh, later applied at a different position within the same umbrella, and the people that were familiar with this person said, "No." don't hire this person. You will make your life more difficult than it needs to be. So I will, I will simply say that while I just, you know, had the joke at the expense of, you know, how Feige could have said that faster. Um, I do understand if, if somebody's going to be a poison pill, you don't necessarily want them around on the set. What I don't like is Drawing from that same example that I just gave, it's not that they went out and then torched that person elsewhere. They had no, they were like, you have a good life. We just, you're not working here. And so I think Feige could have made a much different statement to say, looking at the way things aligned, Ruffalo was who, we, you know, we wanted to go with originally. So that's why we cho made the choice that we did. Uh, no hard feelings. We wish him the best of luck. That 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 statement was unnecessarily harsh uh, to Ed Norton, and very much paints him in a a negative light. And what's interesting to me about the whole thing is the fact that, from everything I've read, the fact that the Hulk is as successful as we both thought it was is probably down to Ed Norton being very passionate about the project and not accepting less than what he felt the character itself deserved. But I do remember reports that he, on the press tour, might have, in their opinion, taken a little bit too much credit for his contributions. He wasn't magnanimous about it. He was like, well, yeah, and, it's great because I did Will that just it. be a problem with Marvel in general, not wanting anybody to have more press than Marvel? Yeah, probably so. So probably so. I'm just saying. I feel like that is actually kind of part of the issue here is that there's e a lot of ego involved, and I think a lot of ego becomes about this is about the system and not about any one person. Um, mm. even though, you know, I mean, Marvel would not have been successful if it hadn't been for Robert Downey Jr. I mean, in all honesty. That's what this is built on is his charisma yeah. and the but, fact that he worked in Iron Man <laughs> in the first place. But I, I sincerely have a feeling that Robert Downey Jr., when he renegotiated his contract, yeah. it was probably he probably gets money from every single Marvel movie that's made <laughs> until his character is done. Probably. So it's like, is he going to create problems? No. He's making a bajillion dollars a year. Mm -hmm. What does he care? Yeah. You know, and I, one of the questions that we've kind of asked through this, and I think before we get to the ratings, I think this is a good way to kind of close it out, is that how does this impact the franchise? And I think that this fully cements the formula. This yes. fully cements the Iron Man, 
we're going to go with the quippy one-liners. That's how we're going to do business. That and and the bright, shiny, neon feel for our heroes and the look of most of the films. There will be a couple of exceptions to that, but on a whole, that's the formula. I would say that even though it takes a few more movies to get there, it is, in a large sense, this is Goldfinger for the Marvel Universe, Mm -hmm. where Dr. No, you have aspects of it. You have a good, strong lead who's charismatic. From Russia with Love, you actually have a very, I mean, from Russia with Love, I think is one of the best Bond movies in existence. And, but it's, it's darker, it's a little grittier, it's a little, a little bit more tactile than Bond's reputation comes to be. And then you get to Goldfinger and whatever cultural issues you're going to have with it, set that aside. Template wise, it sets the template and it's so successful that they say, that's it. That's James Bond. And that's what the movie's going to be like from that point forward. So I, I think this is the Goldfinger moment for the MCU. Well, with that in mind, John, what do you rate the Avengers? Wow. Uh, it, this is tough because I've gone back and forth and I'm having, I'm having trouble. I really am having trouble because, uh, again, I don't think that the, the thematic depth is there the same way it was even in Captain America uh, or even in the Hulk. Uh, I think that overall there are things that don't work. I think that it overstays its welcome and the final battle is too darn long. I think that, like I said, the 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 first stinger winds up being a, a story cheat. Not a big fan of that. I will, however, wind up giving it three and a half because it's still well put together. The characters still work. And where I was having trouble was I was bouncing back and forth between three and three and a half. But technically, it's a well put together script. Everybody gets good FaceTime. It's clear who each character is. The theme is good. Uh, the musical theme is good. Overall, the effects work. So, yeah, I landed three and a half. What about you? This is really... I, As we've been talking about the film and as I've been thinking about it, I've really been struggling. Is this a three or is this a three and a half? It is absolutely like the hardest one so far for me to come to because is three too harsh and is three and a half too generous? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. really what I'm coming down to. And same, yeah. And I, gosh, man, I, I'm, I'm really, uh, as with how I struggled with Thor. I'm struggling with the Avengers because it doesn't hold up as well as it is it wants to. And I think maybe True. even people's imaginations think it does. But I still think that for what it does for comic books in general of being the first one to really bring a whole team together, I am going to slide and let it have a three and a half. Even yes. though, in all honesty, it's probably more a three, um, which makes yep. it just better than an average film, which it is. 
Um, but I, I think its place in history for bringing these characters together and bringing a whole team together is is what will put it there um, at three and a half. So I don't know. Maybe catch me on a bad day and it's a three. Who knows? Um, but I guess with that said, John, it's now time to rank the films. And oh, no. so I'm... I'm really this, interested. This, this to is see. a part that tests my memory. Oh God! Yeah. Well, Help me. but it's okay because you know, <laughs> you know, with Avengers thrown into the mix, it could throw some things out of whack for you in your list. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me try to remember here. Let me try to remember. I'm Iron Man's going to remain at the top. Captain America: The First Avenger. Although I've been waffling since we last talked about it. It's going to remain in the number two slot. I'm going to let it slide. I'm going to let it stay there. The Incredible Hulk stays at number three. The Avengers comes in at number four. Thor at number five. And Iron Man 2 stays locked in the basement. Never to emerge (laughs) until much later in this conversation. I love it. Well, no, I, it's, it's funny. So I'm Iron Man, obviously, number one. Uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, number two. All right. Incredible Hulk, number three. We're, the, we're going neck and neck yeah. right here. Number uh, four is the Avengers. Yep. Number five is Iron Man 2. And no, uh, just, number six just, no. is Thor. This, uh, and this Thor is, this will... Is, Possibly stay there for quite a long time uh, until we get to some other films in the series. So I, I, I just love the fact that even though they're different for us, we've both chosen a child of scorn in the MCU <laughs> yes. already, and we can't resist it. We have to keep mentioning how much we dislike it. Yes, oh, I, true. So I, I just, I just find it so so fun and interesting that we're basically like mm-hmm. flip sides of the same coin there, but we cannot resist the urge to say and you stay in the corner over there i don't want to see you at the table get away yeah and who knows how long it'll be before you know that can come out of the corner and something else is thrown into the corner um but uh we'll get there we'll get there uh so oh man (laughs) i have a feeling that the word thor is in the title though (laughs) maybe who knows it could be sooner than that but um john it's been this show has just been so much fun as we've been going back and and revisiting these films together and so if people do want to catch up with you uh, and talk to you and you know talk about their thoughts on the Avengers or anything else where could people find you well if you're crazy enough to come looking for me you can find me as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E I am out there everywhere to be found and am even toying with the idea of starting to blog again because eh, why not? Uh, but for now, probably uh, come on over and check me out over on Letterboxd, which is the movie rating social network. Can't get too controversial there. And uh, the, uh, the you know, it, it's a lot of fun because uh, I watch a lot of movies. Uh, you can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting two shows. One show is called House Lights, where we go through the works of directors, either by decade, by entire body of work, or whatever crazy combination we come up with. And I co-host that with Darren Moser and Tristan Riddell. And I'm also on a show on the Nerd Party called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast that I 
co-host with the charming Mr. Matthew rushing right over there. And where else can people find you, Matt? Well, uh, you could find me all over the place on social media at MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network with the main show, The 602 Club, which is the same feed you are here. Uh, Make sure you check all that out. I hope you will. Uh, Of course, uh, you can find Snyder Cuts there as well with John. Uh, And then, of course, here on the network uh, doing Warp 5, The Orb, and Literary Tracks. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. Literary Trek is about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, not only doing aggressive negotiations with John, also did Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, which is a Harry Potter podcast. We went through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time, and that is a finished show, so you can enjoy the whole thing now. But thank you so much for joining us. Avengers! Avengers!